From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, how a single mother decided failure was not an option and used that tenacity to build Kinky Curly Yaki, a textured hair extensions company with over a million dollars in annual revenue. Vivian Kay is one of those people who just makes you smile. She is vivacious, wicked smart, and an endless ball of energy. As with most people, her professional and personal paths have not been linear, but she is someone who has used her challenges as a springboard right from the very beginning. I was born in uh, Ghana, so that's in West Africa, uh, and I immigrated with my parents uh, over to Canada uh, as a toddler. Um, so I'm one of four girls. I am number two. Guys. <laughs> number two, four. Uh, and I was the black sheep. So I was always the one. If my mom said A, I would say A, H. You know, I would <laughs> right. said go up, I would go down. Just, you know, just to do something. Um, you know, I guess I was a bit rebellious. Uh, so I've always had this big personality, always outgoing, always a friendly kid. And, uh, you know, no one knew quite what to do with me. <laughs> so. Did you enjoy that? Did you like that people were kind of overwhelmed by you or maybe just a little bit surprised by your big personality? Oh, I wouldn't say that they were overwhelmed. I think it's just compared to my other sisters, they were always very like oh wow like and they always would remember me so they wouldn't remember what my sister's names were but they would remember my name and so everyone right. would always ask my parents oh how's Vivian doing not realizing that they had three <laughs> that there were other people involved there were right? other people in the family absolutely but no I, I I I loved it because I didn't see anyone that looked like me that was like me uh so I I loved it that sounds really fun. When your parents immigrated, did they go to a community in Canada? I know that you're in Toronto now, so I don't know if they originally came to Toronto. Um, but did were they were there other people from Ghana around you, or was your family really very different from everyone else? No. Well, so I actually live. Well, we, we actually immigrated to a city just outside of Toronto, so it's like a suburb, 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, and my dad's brother was already here, so he was the one who sponsored him to come over. Nice. Uh, and so then, yeah, so there was a little small community here uh, that had established themselves and basically was going back home and bringing everybody, <laughs> bringing yeah. everybody to Canada. Yeah. Listen, that's the same way that my grandparents ended up in America. They, right? you know, they came over from Poland in 1920s something or another and brought over, you know, and slowly brought their families over. It's, right. it's how we all end up. Uh, Immigration is world. beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really is. And it's also one of those things that it can so define you so many generations later, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's always interesting to me to speak to people. You yourself immigrated. Um, but for me, as someone who comes from people who immigrated, you know, not because of great reasons, Jews weren't doing so well in Europe. No, not so much. No, yeah. it wasn't. A, it wasn't a party. No. So, um, you know, but it's, it's something that really does, it really defines kind of who my family is. It has you know, impact. We've been here for so long. Yes, it does. It really does have impact. So when, you're, when your family came over here, what did your parents do? 
did your did your mom have a job? Did your dad have a job? What what was that like? My dad was a mechanic, uh, and my mom stayed home to take care of us uh, because there was four of us, and she English was not her forte, uh, so she wasn't um, you know she didn't go to school, so she didn't learn English, um, and so then she basically relied on us to help her navigate around the world or in our surroundings. So my dad went and he would go and do the nine to five and make the money and my mom would stay at home and we would help her learn English. That's great. That's, that's really, did that, do you think that that was something that made you feel that you were kind of smarter than your mom? Because no, no, my mom made it a point to be like, (laughs) my mom would always say, you may be taller than me, but my brain is bigger. Oh, that's Um, the best line. (laughs) <laughs> That's yeah. a mom line. <laughs> yes. That is so great. No. You know what? In fact, it made me more empathetic to um to just people in general. Because you always just think that everyone has their, you know, has their stuff together and they know what they're doing. Uh when, you know, everyone has that one thing that they're insecure about. And that one thing for my mom was English. And so then it made me more of a, I guess I'm more of a patient child. Um, you know, if you, if there's such a thing, right. <laughs> um, but you know, to help her learn, um, as we were learning. So it was, it was a very interesting dynamic. Uh, my mom would tell me stories about how when we had to go to the doctor's appointment, the doctor would tell my dad what the address was. And my dad would tell my mom and my mom would tell me, I would tell the bus driver. Right. And then- so then, yeah. So I've always sort of had this air of leadership about me from from a young child because I, I, I had to. Right, because you needed you needed to. Out of curiosity, what language did you guys speak at home? At home, uh, well, we spoke a couple, a couple of tribal languages. So the two languages that my parents primarily spoke were Ga and Ewe. Uh, those are two languages that aren't, like if you meet someone from Ghana, that's probably not the language they speak because um, we are more of a minority language. Uh, so that's, those are the two languages that they spoke at home. But my mom, who worked in the markets in Ghana, speaks, I think, at least, outside of English, at least four or five other dialects. Very cool. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So you said that you were always kind of like, as, as a leader, because you needed to be that way. Did mm-hmm. that mean that you were always kind of entrepreneurial? Was that something that you had as a kid as well? Well, you know, my mom, my mom had to be an entrepreneur. So my dad, first came to Canada and then he, he brought us over. So in that time, she, my mom had to figure out how to support us. So she would put me on the, on her back and take me into the, 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 the markets of Mokal and sell goods. So she was one of those ladies, you always see those African ladies with all the goods on their heads. My okay. mom was that person with the baby on her back. So awesome. I guess you could say it's in my DNA because I saw her from a very young age doing that. And even when she came to Canada, she always found ways to bring in supplemental income. Um, At the time, of course, we didn't know that's what an entrepreneur was. It was more like, you know, we have to do what we need to do to make some money, right? Right. Um, So, but yeah, so we've always, I've always, I've always seen it and it's always been from my mother. So it didn't seem so foreign to me when I started doing it. So how did you get started? What was your first business like? Was it a lemonade stand? Was it something more, you know, kind of put together? How did you get started, you know, on this journey of entrepreneurship? Well, interestingly enough, no one, you know, throughout my, my school career, um, throughout high school or even post-secondary, even thought to mention being an entrepreneur to me. 
Um, and I think back then it's because being an entrepreneur was for people who couldn't get jobs, right? So yeah, sure. um, it wasn't until I was in, uh, let's say about, what's today? Today's the 2019. <laughs> so let's say back in 2005, my sister, my older sister got married. Um, and we hired a decorator who said she would decorate her wedding for, I can't remember the exact amount, but let's say a thousand dollars. Okay. So, and this was uh, someone who would do like the centerpieces, the, yeah, the chair covers, that type of thing. Right. Okay. Um, so she agreed to do it for a thousand dollars. And then about two weeks before her wedding, she said she needed more money, but couldn't justify why she needed more money. And so at the time I thought, well, man, that's crazy. Like, why can't you just quote something and do what you say you're going to do? Uh, and so when I went looking, and this is in my community, so this is from the Ghanaian community, and I thought, well, there's no one running it like, quote unquote, white people. So I'm going to be that person that runs it like white people, okay. <laughs> right? Like more organized, your pricing is there, what you see is what you get. Um, and so then I set out, I started my first business and it was called Vivian's Decor. It was wedding decor only. So all I did was decorate. So I was, I did the centerpieces, backdrops, head tables, uh, chair covers, anything that was decorative in your wedding. I did that. And so that, that business, I started off as a high, a side hustle. Um, I ran it for about four years until, uh, I got let go from my full-time job. And then from there, I ran it. I ran it full time hmm. for another for another four years. For another four or five years, I ran it full time. So you were doing wedding planning for about ten years, basically. Yeah. Yes. I want to go back to running it like white people for a second. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert: I'm white. Yeah. Uh, no, but you're, you are not. But <laughs> that's the thing. So it's funny that you say yeah. that because I am Jewish and I am an Orthodox Jew. And that's kind mm -hmm. of like our own little community, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. or tribe um, within Jewish people. And when I started my business, I actually specifically started in wholesale with boutiques because I knew that I could call up boutiques that were run by other Orthodox Jewish women and just say, hi, I'm Rifki, let's talk. And they would just automatically trust me because we were from the same background. And it was definitely something that I used to my advantage. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, there's, there was a lot about running my business that way that kind of allowed me to get in early that also meant that things were not always the most professional because mm. I think that when you operate within your family, mm -hmm. you, now you have sisters, right? So I do as well. There are some things that I have said to my sisters that are awful. <laughs> terrible. I would never say them to anyone else. And I'm no. sure that you have had similar experiences. Absolutely. Like, have legendary stories. And the reason why I can get away with that is because they, she's my sister, you know? Right. They're my sisters. We love and respect each other as that baseline. And then we just throw things at everyone. Like, that's just the way it works. And I think that when you're operating within your tribe, that same underlying family dynamic can get a little tricky, particularly mm -hmm. when it's people you're not, you know, blood related to. And I actually spent a lot of time trying to make my business run a little bit more professionally mm -hmm. because it was getting, it, it, there was definitely, I did have some challenges in that respect. So was that something that you had also felt like you dealt with? Did you also feel like dealing with in your community? There were some things that people were like, yeah, we're just going to run it like we're friends. And that right. might mean that you might not get paid on time or you might not get paid in full or, you know, any number of general just 
junk that people might throw at you because they think that they can get away with it. So did you deal with that? And if so, how did you deal with that? Like what were some ways that you kind of got around that? I did deal with that. I absolutely dealt with that. And uh, how I dealt, how I handled it was I had decided, okay, well, I can't, the niche was way too small for me to make any, any real good money. Um, and especially when you had decorators that were already known in the community who were charging $1,000 for what should have been, you know, a $2,500 job. I already knew I was up against, you know, some barriers that she had created for me. Right. Uh, so I quickly realized that I needed to work outside of my community. Yeah, and because I was in Toronto, yeah, and because I was in Toronto, which is one of the most diverse cities in the world, um, I was able to tap into that. So I was able to work both sides of the, of the coin, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and so then when I would have people coming from my own community who were now seeing the type of work that I was doing on larger scales, they would come and say, oh, you know, I would love to work with you, but I can't afford. And I'd be like, listen, Kathy paid me. Look, here's an invoice that Kathy signed off on. Kathy and Chad are getting married at this really fancy, <laughs> this really fancy <laughs> banquet hall, and she's paying me the money that you don't want to pay me. Right. With the, without question. Right? right. Because she believes in me. If you want to hang, like I, so I was not a believer in haggling, haggling. Um, I, I, to this day, I hate doing it. Like if someone says that's their price, then that's their price. Is it worth it to me? Then yeah. If it's not, then I'll walk away, but I'm not going to argue with you about it. Yeah. It's something actually that, uh, since running a business that I've stopped doing because mm -hmm. like as a consumer, I am definitely prone to haggling. Okay. Um, I, I certainly am. It's just, I don't know, maybe it's just because I like to see if I can win um, or just because I want to like, why not ask? And if they say no, they say no. Um, but what I realized was that from the business end also, whenever like a wholesaler or boutique or uh, you know, a wholesale account would ask me to compromise on my price. I never said yes. It was always, I'm sorry. These are my prices. My, I believe my products are worth this amount take it or leave it. Um, and what I found was that every time that someone had asked me, I felt a little ickier about myself, even though I was doing the right thing mm -hmm. and I was asserting myself in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and I just didn't want to be doing that to other people. And I think mm -hmm. that also, you know, you behave differently once you, once you own a business, once you run yeah. a business, you just, you realize that some things that everyone might do are just really like buttheaded and you just don't want to be a butthead. So right. Or yeah. even better, like you just realize that what if that's what they're valuing their service or products at, then that's what they're valuing their service and products at. If I don't value it at that price, then there's someone else who probably has a price point that I want it at. Yes, there's nothing wrong with saying no or even asking, but I, like I would ask. If there's, I would ask if, if it's a possibility, right. great, but I'm not going to haggle with them. Right. I'm not going to argue with them, yeah. get them to come down on price. Because to me, that's just being disrespectful. And especially now as a business owner, I know that that's just being disrespectful to me. Right. Yeah, right. for sure. Uh, so yeah. So yeah, I just learned that I needed to step outside of my community and that's how my business grew. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So you mentioned also that you had gotten let go from your full-time job. Now getting <laughs> fired is not fun. No, no, no. I was no. like, let go. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so, so like, uh, can I assume that this was like around 2008 or so? Uh, this was in 2010. Okay. Yeah. So still, still kind of recovering economy and all of that. Mm -hmm. So you, 
in a lot of ways, I guess, looking back at it, you could say that that, you know, you getting let go was a, a springboard and yeah. a good thing. Yeah. But at the yeah. time, I'm guessing it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Oh, no, of course not. Because who wants to get let go? Okay, fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, which one was it? <laughs> <laughs> like, who wants to get fired from their job, right? Um, and at the time, you know, I, I thought of it as, I was like, it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, because since then, since 2010, I've been a full-time entrepreneur. Um, and I have not looked back. And, you know, every once in a while, I think about a nine-to-five when things get tough, but who doesn't? Right. Um, and so uh, I know it's, it's been, it was the best thing to ever happen to me. It forced me, because at the time I didn't have a kid, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have any worries. So I was like, well, why not? Now's the perfect time to see if I can actually do it. And once, you know, once I actually put my full energy into it, it, it took off. And it being your party planning business. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So you're party planning, you're killing it. You're doing these amazing parties, which I know are fantastic because I've seen your stuff and anyone who puts out just even Instagram stories like you puts on a great wedding. I just know that <laughs> you're, you're killing it. It's doing great. And how does kinky curly yaki happen? What, what was the, the problem that you saw? What was the impetus that happens? And also, can you just explain what kinky curly yaki is for people who might not know? Yes. So, uh, so what it was is I needed hair. So, um, just like you, I wear, I tend to wear a lot of, uh, well, we wear it as a protective style. Um, so black women, any black women you see in the media, be it Beyonce, Oprah, anyone, they are probably wearing a wig or braids or a weave to protect our hair. Uh, now Afro hair, um, isn't necessarily suited to this environment, to the North American environment. It gets very dry. Uh, it breaks off. Like it's just, it's just, our hair is just not meant to be here. Okay. And so then uh, one of the ways we deal with it is to protect it. So we'll braid it down underneath, keep it moisturized, and we wear, we'll wear a wig or we'll wear braids or we'll do something where we don't have to um, manage it on the day-to-day -day, -day -day basis. So I needed something that looked quote unquote presentable. Uh, and what that means within the black community is, you know, just like with every, you know, all women, there's this ridiculous standard of beauty that we, that we're supposed to uphold ourselves to. And within our community, um, having our, our natural curly textured hair out was the equivalent of like leaving the house in just your underwear. Like it was just not a thing to do. It's just, it's just not something that people do. You're always going to have either some kind of head wrap or something like that, or a wig or a weave or braids or something like that. It's just pushback because it wasn't seen as a beautiful, it wasn't seen as beautiful because right. what we're seeing in the media is the long flowing hair. That's beautiful. Right. So we had to conform to those standards. So to do that, what a lot of women were doing, were using these chemicals to straighten their hair, uh, which is basically a reverse perm. Right. Um, except to straighten our hair. Um, but unfortunately, that, uh, that wasn't the best thing for us to be doing to our hair. Um, and plus, a lot of us just got tired of doing it. So with the internet, the rise of the internet, the rise of YouTube and, and people on, the, on YouTube showing us how to care for our hair, a lot more of us started to go natural. So with that said, I decided I needed to protect my hair, but I wanted to wear textures that looked like they grew out of my head. But when we were going to the beauty supply stores to buy this, these textures, it was always these silky Indian hair textures that didn't match with our African. So I was tired of the whole African in the front and Indian in the back. I wanted something that looked authentic on me. Like you see when you see Nicki Minaj and she's got 
32 inches of hair down to her butt. That is not right. her hair. Right. Of course not. I, yeah. I wanted something where no one would ask me where I bought my hair from or, um, you know, or anything, any other ridiculous questions. So, so you wanted it to look like your own hair, to look like yes. it belonged on your head, but yes. you still wanted to protect your actual hair. So you weren't going right. to wear your actual hair out. It would be too high maintenance, too, um, too, just too, just too much. On, yeah, on just every too much especially living a busy lifestyle, you know, I'm running my business, I'm, you know, meeting clients, I'm doing all sorts of things. I was too busy to cry over, you know, I tried to twist out my hair and it didn't, it didn't, it failed. So right. I didn't have time to, you know, to cry over that. I let me just put on a wig and go. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's more of an, I guess you could say it's more of a, a an accessory for us. Well, that makes sense to me because with with orthodox women it's very similar because yeah i wear a wig for religious reasons um, orthodox right. women cover their hair once they get married um and the things that you can put on your head let me tell you like there's yeah. so many different there's falls and wigs and hats and bands and and it does become a part of the outfit and how you choose to accessorize so yeah that right. makes perfect sense to me yeah so but the thing is is when i went to go looking when i went to go look for textures that looked like mine they were being buried underneath the silkier textures that didn't blend with my african hair right right so then i thought huh you know i just sort of you know i took a mental note like no one's just selling kinky hair took a mental note continued on with my you know with my life uh running my wedding business until i went to a meetup i went to a black girl meetup and a woman came up to me and asked me who my hairdresser was and what my regimen was to get my hair so long. And I was like, girl, this is a weave. <laughs> and she was like, wow, I would buy that. And so then that's when the light bulb went off because I thought, well, I was solving my own problem, but if she has that problem, then that means at least a dozen other women have got to have this problem. Right, you have right? found someone else who shares this same issue that you right. have. Right. And so then I thought, you know, so in the down season of my wedding business, so in December of 2012, I launched Kinky Curly Yaki. So what Kinky Curly Yaki means is just the three textures that are found in the, the African diaspora, or uh, I guess that's the best way to describe it. But there's okay. the kinky, which is the kinky hair. There's the curly, which is the curly hair. And the yaki is what really stumps people. So people say, well, what's yaki, Vivian? Uh, so what they used to do is when they needed to mimic black women's hair straightened, they would use hair from a yak. Okay. From the, yeah, from the yak animal. And then they just threw an eye on it and called it yaki. Oh, so it's sort okay. of a tongue in cheek. Yeah, so it's a sort of a tongue in cheek because if you're a black woman who wears protective styles, you know what yaki is. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Very well, cool, I like it. Yeah. A, little, a little bit of a behind the scenes. Okay. Yeah. So you realize you have this own problem of yourself. You run into someone else who has the same problem. There's a big difference between having an idea and starting a company. So talk me through that, that beginning part. Talk me through that middle section. Did you right away go to manufacturing your own pieces? Did you just find other pieces and resell them? How did this, how did it become a thing? So how it became a thing is, remember, so I was trying to solve my own problem. So I, I, I went through a bunch of different manufacturers and factories trying to find the perfect texture to match my hair. And when I finally settled on one, um, and then I met the woman who told me she would buy it, I went back to that factory and I said, listen, I want to create, I want to create more of what I had you create for me. And they were like, oh, no, it's too much work. It's too much work. And I'm like, that's, that's what I want. So if you want my business, this is what you're going to have to do. So, um, so that's what they did. They, so they would send, they would send over samples and this was all done over the internet. 
Um, and this was the rise. This was before Alibaba and AliExpress is what it is today. This was just strictly via email. Okay. Um, and so then um, we would go back and forth every, you know, every other day I was getting UPS shipments. I would try the hair. Okay. It's not curly enough. It's not coily enough. It's not straight enough or it's not textured enough. And then we would just go back and forth, back and forth until I was able to finalize what the textures currently look like. And so with that, um, I had already, because I was already trying, because I was already trying to solve my own problem, I was already in a community of people that also told me that this could be a thing. Like I would, they were like, oh yeah, I would totally wear that hair. I even had girls in my, I was a part of a Facebook uh, weave group and I had girls in that group try the hair for me. Uh, those were, that was my first taste of influencers without realizing it. And it wasn't until one of the girls posted a picture like in a, in a, in a hair group forum that it took off because people were like, I want that hair. Who's selling it? And they would, she would be like, kinky curly yaki, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm not selling it. This is who's selling it. I'm just wearing it because I like it. Right. right? So, um, and so that's how, that's how it took off. Okay. So from there, now you have a business, right? So there's, this is from when you said that you had the, the idea in December of 2012, at what point did you realize, oh, I have a, like, this is, this is happening. Like at what point did you say, I'm stopping party planning. I'm focusing on this full time. We are going to be the go-to place for textured hair extensions. Uh, well, it's kind of funny. I ran both businesses at the same time. So oh God. yeah. So I launched I had the idea in 2000, uh, in late 2010, I launched the actual website in December of 2012. By June of 2013, we were already doing six figures. Wow. Yeah. And so from there, I was like, oh, wow. Like, ooh, this is just me. You know, this is just me doing it half-ass, right? So, <laughs> no, for sure. So, yeah. So I wonder what would happen if I actually really put my full energy into it. So was that when you decided to give up the party planning? Yeah, I gave up. I gave up the wall. <laughs> I actually had a baby in between. So it was the baby that sort of forced me to, because <laughs> I, was, I was solo. I was happy to do both, right? Because I had all the time in the world and all the energy in the world, right? Uh, was I, I got pregnant uh, later that year. So later in 2013 and gave birth to my son in 2014. And it was then that I realized, okay, um, I need to pick one. And I'm going to pick the one that allows me to stay home and raise my son. Uh, so yeah, in 2000, uh, late, uh, mid 2015, I sold, I sold off the invent, all the inventory I was holding for Vivian Sikor and then focused solely on Kinky Curly Aki and raising my son. Right. That is a lot to have on your, like having two businesses on your plate is like, I have one and I can't imagine having a second one, no matter how kind of half-assed it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when you throw a child into that, was there any part of you that was feeling like, I, I don't know, like overwhelmed or just like, what am, how am I going to properly care for this baby and also take care of this business and also take care of myself? Like, what was that time like for you just emotionally with everything that was fine? Um, well, it was tough. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, I'd do that again. No. <laughs> Um, and you know, on top of that, I was a single mom. Uh, and so then at the time I had people around me who were saying, you know, family and friends that were like, you can't do this. You can't be an entrepreneur and a single mother. No, just a mother period. And on top of that, a single mother, you know, they say with, um, you know, the stats for single mothers, it's like, uh, you know, 80% of single parent homes, they're, they're mobs. And then a third of those women 
are in poverty. Yikes. So was I looking to take my, bring my child into poverty? Is that what you want to do, Vivian? Is that what you want to do? And then on top of the fact that, you know, 90% of startups fail. So are you grinding? You know what I mean? So I had all this pressure around me. Um, and I just thought, well, I want to succeed despite all that. Despite all that. Like I have my own stats I need to, that I'm aspiring to. So I'm not even going to listen to what everyone is saying. I already, you know, I already have my own inner critic saying, Vivian, you're crazy, Vivian, you're crazy. You need to find a job so you can be this child. But I just said, you know what? I just, I just needed to look beyond the stats and just, you know, I have my own data. This is what I need to prove to myself and I'm going to do it. And now I even have more reason to do it because I have a child to support. So I couldn't fail. So yes, I was overwhelmed. Yes, there were days I wanted to cry. Um, you know, there was a point where my son's father was with us and then he left halfway through. So I, there were days where I was depressed and didn't want to get out of bed, but I got up every single morning. I would do what I needed to do for my child. I would do what I needed to do for my business. And I just, I managed to work it through. I managed to get through it. So failure was not an option. Failure was not an option. Just, and even if I did fail, I need to get back up and try again. Right. And just figure out a way to make this work because there's more on the line right now. Absolutely. So Absolutely. yeah, that, I mean, that kind of pressure living with that kind of pressure and you know even just you know i can relate to the statistics that you're talking about you know what is it like 90 percent of startups fail or something like that those are all things that i've dealt with um, i personally don't have any children so as much as you know i i get it but i don't um when it comes to that whole end of it but there there are times when you can have really just in a business and i'm sure that this is so much more when you're a single mom and you have you know, a beautiful boy, I should mention, X is really cute. Thank X you. Really cute. Um, to, um, to take care of that, the, the doubt, how that can not only creep in, but just be so completely soul crushing. Um, <laughs> and that's something that I personally have dealt with on a much you know, kind of smaller scale than you, because like I said, there was a lot less on, um, at stake for me. What are some ways that you personally dealt with that kind of doubt, like you said, when you were depressed, when things in your personal life were not going so great, when things in your business life might not have been going so great, what are some ways that you, you know, picked yourself up and kept yourself going? Or was it just a matter of kind of slugging through and making do with what you had? Uh, you know, there were some times where I just had to slug it through, right? You just, you just, in order to get to the other side, you got to go through it, right? So right. there were some times where I just had to go through it. And then there were other times where I, if I was feeling overwhelmed, I just had to remind myself that Rome wasn't built in a day. Rome was built brick by brick by brick. So I just had to just, just do the small things. So if, okay, if say, you know, building a whole website is overwhelming, well, you know what, Vivian, just focus on creating a product page. Like just do the small things first, because when you continuously do, continuously do these small things, you end up with one really big thing before you know it. Right. So, but the whole point is to not give up. Right. Just take it one step at a time and see what you can. One step at a time. And you know, you don't, it's, it's a, the whole thing, especially entrepreneurship, uh, even motherhood, same thing. It's a marathon, not a sprint. For sure. For sure. You know, you have to, you have to make sure you keep enough in the bank because as hard as today is tomorrow is still going to happen. Exactly. The things that, that yeah. need to happen. And you can't fix what happened last week. So you got to just keep moving forward so you cannot make that same, you know, mistake again. 
right? right? So I see every failure as a lesson. Like I'm learning a really hard lesson right now. I'm going through a little a transitional period in my business, um, but it's a hard lesson I'm I'm learning. Um, you know, and it's it's it's. You know, when you're going through it, you're like, oh my gosh, let me go find a job. But you realize, no, this is, this is why you're successful because I've had the failures. That's why I'm this successful. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, we are kind of, as people, a culmination of all of our failures. You know, if everything always went great all the time, I know that I'm not a perfect person. Nobody is. So I can't always make perfect decisions or have the, the perfect business or the perfect life or the perfect whatever. So all of those things are just gonna, they're gonna need to, you're gonna, you're gonna mess up. Like it's just gonna happen. And it's, it's a lot more about how you deal with that. So you mentioned that by June of 2013, which is less than a year after you launched the website, you were already in six-figure sales with Kinky Curly Yaki. So I'm not going to ask you how you did it, and I'm not going to ask you like what your secrets were or anything like that, um, just because I think that every business is so different. But what I want to know is that is explosive growth. That's something that like in less than a year, you have a, you have a business on your hands. So what did you do to manage that growth? How did you keep up with the curve? And what were some kind of challenges that you hit along the way in just growing it and keeping up? Um, well, I, I faced some, um, monetary financial challenges, right? Um, but luckily I started the business really slow. Like I wasn't afraid to start small. So it was literally one person would buy two bundles of hair, I would go and buy four. So I always reinvested all the profits back into the business. Um, and so then there was, and so then there was that, but then after a while I needed to start bringing in some outside help because at the time I was washing all the hair too. So I wanted to be different from all the other hair extension brands that were out there and decided that I needed to wash the hair. Um, and so then I had washing the hair that made it better. Um, well, because with curly hair, uh, what typically happens because they're, all of our curl textures are, are steam processed. So there's no kinky hair girls growing their hair out. <laughs> it's for us right. to, for me to have my business. It right. starts off as bone straight hair and then we steam process it to these textures. So the curls, usually like I got curly Afro hair actually starts out as this perm rod look. Like it's a very it. tight curled look. And so then people, I always saw people in the Facebook groups or, you know, in the forums complaining that the hair never looked like what it looked like in the, you know, the, the, um, the company's photos, right. the marketing photos, right? So I was like, well, I'm going to be different and I'm going to wash the hair so that it looks like what it's supposed to look like when you receive it. You're going to pre-shrink the cotton shirt. Right, exactly, exactly. But what was happening was, of course, that was not a scalable plan. Right. <laughs> that wasn't a scalable plan. Right. So, yeah, so, you know, I, after a while, I actually had to start recruiting my, my family, so my mom and my sisters and my dad would come in and help me wash air. Um, but, of course, that eventually, you know, you can't scale that to, you know, to a million-dollar business, so I had to stop doing it. But people were like, oh, my goodness, you destroyed your business. I was only buying from you because you washed it. Your business is, you know, your business is going down the drains. And so, of course, that was scary because all these people who were buying from me were like, now I'm not going to buy from you because you don't offer the service that differentiated you from everyone else, right? Right. But it turns out it, it, it didn't matter <laughs> because oh they, still, they still kept coming, right? 
Yeah, people people yeah. don't mind that much. So everyone's telling you, you know, you have to keep washing the hair. This is not, this is, you know, it, this needs to happen. This is why I'm going. You said, I don't care. I can't make this happen anymore. And the sky did not fall down. And Kiki Kurliaki continues to grow. Um, you, you, you took it on this pretty long journey. Like, you know, this is in, uh, what, what point are we at now? Are we in like 2014, 2015? We're in 2015 now. Yeah, we're okay. in so then what's what's happened since then what's happened you know we're we're in 2019 now um what has happened in in the four years since what are the directions that kinker curliaki has grown and where do you want to take it uh so um what i found was after i stopped with the hair washing and i needed to scale the business um that's absolutely what happened it started to scale um, and then I started to feel, I was really starting to feel overwhelmed and I needed to hire my first official employee. So in June 2016, I, uh, I hired my first official employee and that gave me more time to work on the business as opposed to in the business. Yes. And it was later that year that I hit my first million dollars. Wow. Uh, sales. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And then since then it's been a million, you know, a million plus year over year. So, uh, so now it's just managing that and, um, you know, watching the market and making sure that, uh, you know, cause we're the OGs of the niche. So this niche didn't, did not exist until I created it. Uh, and of course some other competitors have come into the market since then. So it's just a matter of keeping ahead of the game and, um, you know, being new and innovative and, and staying on top of, you know, the trends that we see, um, you know, coming from pop culture, like, you know, so people started wearing more African, you know, more tribal looks with their hair. So then we had to get influencers to start doing, you know, mimicking that same thing. So it's just a matter of keeping up with the trends. Um, you know, 2020 is going to be a year of making it more um, technology friendly. So not to say that it's not technology friendly, it's built, I built the website on the Shopify platform. I'm a huge fan of Shopify, um, but I need to make it more um, tech, tech friendly. So, you know, either, so we're, I'm looking at a number of options. So we're thinking about, about doing apps, um, you know, becoming a drop shipper for other businesses, anything to make other, um, to take advantage of the brand recognition that we have in the marketplace because now kinky curly yaki has become synonymous with kinky hair so like how people say oh, i'm going to google this or i need a kleenex or i'm going to drink a coke people say i need that kinky curly yaki but they're talking about kinky hair and not necessarily our hair they're just talking about kinky hair in general so so yeah it's just taking that brand recognition and um you know capturing more of the market space because this is a the hair extension industry is a $10 billion industry and black hair is a huge portion of that. Um, so, you know, I just need to do what I can to, to stay on top. That's not, yeah, yeah. that's not, that sounds very cool. So you mentioned Shopify. The first time that I became aware of your existence was actually because you did a Shopify webinar. Yes. I, uh, my plot, my website, impactfashionnyc.com is also on Shopify and, uh, Shopify is not sponsoring this podcast, but I will give them a plug. They're fabulous. And they have <laughs> Shopify Academy, which is, yes. and they, oh, they're always doing webinars and there are classes that are online. Um, and Shopify Academy itself is actually free. You don't need to be on Shopify to, um, to take advantage of it. So that was when I first became aware of you. I don't remember the topic of the webinar <laughs> 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 to over six figures or 
I don't know, something like that. What I do remember is that as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, I don't know who this girl is, but I want to be friends with her. <laughs> I like this girl and we need to hang out. Um, so I had, I, I, had, I had started following on Instagram and you have this great show that you do on your Instagram every Wednesday called Mind Your Business with Vivian Kay. Please tell me more about that and the fun party that happens there. Well, what it is, is Mind Your Business is the, uh, it's the live weekly show where we talk about all things entrepreneurial. And we tackle anything and everything that gets in the way of your business, your mindset, and your money. So every week um, we have, uh, just about every week we have guests on that are either entrepreneurs or experts in the e-commerce space. And Rivki was my first guest. <laughs> So, so the funny fun. thing, yeah, it was fun because um, it's something that I've been wanting to do and doing that Shopify webinar pushed me to do it. Um, you know, and so and with anything, if you want to, if you want to be an expert or if you want to be able to do something, all you got to do is start. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, so that's, so that's what that show was about. It, it's where I just drop gems and talk about how I'm a 13 year veteran of the entrepreneur game and how I bootstrapped two businesses from the ground out, uh, from the ground up. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it, what it does is it shows what I get to do is what I love about it is that I get to share my story. Um, I come from a, you know, a lot of people that follow me, including yourself are from diverse backgrounds. So we don't necessarily see people who look like ourselves as these, you know, entrepreneurial superstars. They're usually just, you know, white men. Um, and so then what I aim to do is to help, um, entrepreneurs that are from diverse backgrounds and from unconventional backgrounds use their awesomeness. So, you know, use their natural born skills and their, and their, uh, coupled with their entrepreneurial aspirations and help them confidently build businesses of their dreams, just like I've done. Right. Because we always right. seem to think that we need to, you know, being an entrepreneur looks like this. It looks like, you know, Elon Tusk or Musk or whatever his name is. <laughs> right. Right. So, I, um, you know, we tend to think that it looks like, you know, the, the single white man, whereas it can look like any one of us. Can you tell me a little bit more about Chad? Because I think that it's something. Chad, that, um, yeah. So he, I want to give a little bit of background. Yeah. Um, there's a character that you talk about a lot. His name is Chad, and I'm going to let you do the full, flood, you know, the full version of it. But mm -hmm. we were actually messaging each other one night, and I, uh, I was going back and forth, and I don't remember what started the conversation, but what I do remember is that you said something like, Rifki, you should write a book. And I said, you know what? That's very sweet of you, but I don't want to write a book. I don't have time to write a book. Um, and you responded, Chad would. So tell me what you mean by that. Tell me <laughs> Tell me why I should be inspired by him. Why should we all be like Chad? So Chad is the stereotypical, mediocre white guy that is in every area of our life. So he's the guy at work that somehow became the VP and no one knows how he got there. Um, he's just that guy that just goes for it. He doesn't question his abilities. He doesn't ask why. He doesn't hesitate. He just does it. He's not even qualified for that job, but you know what? He believes in himself so much, he went for it, and guess what? He got it. So what I always tell women, especially women, <laughs> is that if you, because especially when we're always like, oh, I don't know, I'm so worried, my reputation, what they do they? Chad's not thinking about that. Chad doesn't give a, a, a rat's butt 
what anyone else thinks. If he thinks he's qualified to do it in his head, he's going after it, right? So I say, if you, if you think you can't do it, all you have to do is have the audacity of a mediocre white man and just do it and just do what Chad would do. So if you're worried about what, just think, what would Chad do? What would Chad, Chad do? wouldn't sit there and cry. Chad wouldn't question his abilities. He just does it. So be like Chad. Be like Chad. So what? I, I, the way that that conversation ended was me actually saying, you know, I w- I've always thought about starting a podcast. I think mm-hmm. it could be really, I think, I just think it could be really fun. And you immediately wrote back, Chad Wood. Chad Wood. Chad Wood. And here yeah. we are. So we're here all going to be a little bit more like Chad. Chad. We're going to take those things that we think <laughs> hold us back and we're just going to completely ignore them and just go for it. Now, I, yeah, exactly. I know that you are someone who can help people kind of just go for it in that way. So if I'm looking to be a little bit more like Chad, what are some ways that Miss Vivian K can help me out with that? <laughs> well, what I do is what I, if you're an entrepreneur and you're in the e-commerce space, um, because that's what I specialize in, um, and you are diverse and you're from an unconventional background and you want to use your awesomeness and your unique capabilities to confidently build the business of your dreams, that's me. I can help you do that. Um, I have right now what I have, uh, what's called open office hours. Um, so if you jump online, if you're either in the new idea phase, so you just need someone that you can bounce ideas off of uh, to see if your idea makes sense as in money sense. Um, or if you're, a, if you're a new business and you've already set up and you've got everything up and going, you just need an experienced set of eyes to just take a look and you know, make some tweaks here and there. I can help you do that as well. Or if you're an established business like yourself, Ripke, and you just need someone with that experience that not necessarily hold your hand, but just give you, um, you know, give you that guidance to help you get to that next level, to scale to five, six, seven figure business. That's what I can help you do. Uh, And then later on this year, hopefully this fall, uh, I'll actually be launching a a master mastermind groups because what I found is that there were a bunch of women um, that were that need people at their same level, all doing the same things um, and supporting each other. Uh, And so then uh, that's what I'll be putting together, hopefully by mid fall. Uh, Hopefully that'll be up and running too. But yeah, you can find everything you need to know on my website, viviank.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-K-A-Y-E.com. And we are going to link to all of that in the show notes so that you can take full advantage of that. I do encourage you to get a chance to know Miss Vivian a little bit better. She is a hoot and a holler. Uh, oh, I'm a hoot and holler on my Instagram stories. If you oh guys- yes, <laughs> I can vouch for this. Instagram stories. <laughs> yes, I do not watch that many stories uh, just because of the time suck that it can be. I always watch Viv because there's always such great stuff there. Oh, shenanigans. I am. I'm the queen of shenanigans. Yes, you definitely are. I want to close off with one last question. And that is in your life or in your work or in any area, in what way do you want to make an impact on the world? Ooh, I want the impact that I want to make is I want everyone to feel like they can do it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a big, listen, we're all not going to be Mark Zuckerberg's or, you know, (laughs) or Oprah but we can all be those same people in our own way. It's just, we need to get out of our own way in order to accomplish that. So I, you know, my, my end goal with what I do is to just educate, inspire, and uplift people. 
So I want everyone to be, to feel the way I feel, which is, I think I, what I'm doing and how I'm, how I've done it is pretty damn phenomenal. And you can do that too. So that's, that's the impact that I want to leave on people. That sounds really great. Thank you so much for coming on today, Viv. I really appreciate it. You are absolutely welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. If you'd like to learn more about Vivian, her information is linked in the show notes. You can access those by swiping up on the cover art. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blog slash podcast. While you're there, feel free to check out what's new in the world of size-inclusive modest fashion. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leaving a review makes a real difference. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.